Amen. Good morning, City Light. How we doing? Good. 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 Welcome here once again. My name's Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors. Really, really glad you're here today. Sometimes uh, when you are reading God's Word and preparing a sermon, you come across some things unexpected that end up ministering to you in ways that you really needed. And it, that has given me uh, a confidence that what you hear from this pulpit today is merely uh, the overflow of what God has been doing uh, in me. And I'm very, very thankful for that. That's frankly what we want every sermon to be here at our church, um, is true to God's word, but also true to the preacher. And so um, grab your Bible, go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we are in the Gospel of John. We're working our way through the eyewitness account to the life and ministry of Jesus and we finally enter in this week into what scholars call the passion narrative. The passion narrative. Jesus has taught for three years. He has revealed himself and his mission accompanied by many signs and wonders. He's prayed with his disciples, prepared them. And now he will actually tangibly move toward the tragic yet glorious event that defines our faith and our love today. Uh, this morning's sermon, I have given the title, Jesus is in Control. Jesus is in control. Today, Jesus will finally face his foes. He will finally be confronted by the evil that's been brewing against him beside, behind the scenes for several chapters. We're going to see Jesus meet his em uh, enemies and demonstrate a few things that should really matter to us today, church. And that's Jesus' power, Jesus' plan, and Jesus' love. And listen, I've, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If Jesus Christ is ordinary or average in our eyes, if we've let his greatness decay in our lives untouched, if we come in here this morning and he's de decreased in our daily experience of him, then we will look to take matters in our life into our own hands. We will claw for control of our circumstances. And come on, y'all. We know where that ends up. Control can be such an illusion. The reason today's text is such good news, such good news is because you and I, we need someone around which we can orient our trust. And when we see Jesus for who he really is in this passage, we realize he is in control. And we can give him trust of our entire life today. So I want you to pick it up with me in verse 1, John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, I want to do something, fair warning, that may rattle you a little bit this morning. I want to potentially blow up your childhood imagination of this scene. Uh, I was putting my almost four-year-old daughter, Savannah, to bed uh, a few nights ago, uh, or a few weeks ago, excuse me, and we watched a little video on YouTube um, that we found that was just on Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, a little three-minute thing, a little cartoon. And you see... 
Judas, you know, waddle his way across the scene and, and kiss Jesus on the cheek. And, and behind him is this little band of Roman soldiers. There's probably five or six of them, and they've come to apprehend Jesus in case there's some kind of resistance. Truth be told, if you actually do the work to study all four accounts of the gospel message, uh, because of the Passover festival or week that's about to happen in Jerusalem, this is more likely a band of 200 to 600 soldiers. This is a massive show of arms and force that are coming to Jesus armed with weapons, holding lanterns and torches, ready to actually go searching in the caves for a hiding Jesus and to fight in case they encounter serious resistance when they find him. Remember, Jesus' reputation has spread. Um, these chief priests and Pharisees and many of these Roman soldiers were likely doubters of his miracles early on, but at this point in time, they're very familiar with Jesus' supernatural power. Not only that, but thousands upon thousands of people have taken their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover week. If you remember the triumphal entry of Jesus back in John chapter 12 happened, where people actually laid down palm branches in the streets and were begging for Jesus to make his bid for a new kingship in Israel. So swirling are the rumors. So high are the tensions and so fearful are the disciples and so angry are the Romans and the Jews and so in control is Jesus. They will find no resistance from him. He chooses a familiar garden to make it easy for Judas. He moves toward this legion, this, this faction of soldiers in plain sight. You and I, we're not as brave as we think we are. We would have run very fast, like Forrest Gump right out of his leg braces. We would have taken off, sweaty, scared for our life. Jesus knew they were coming, and he marches out, and he stands in front of all these armed men by himself. And the exchange that takes place, if you actually put yourself in this scene, is stunning. Look with me at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. The English rendering of Jesus' response to their question is actually pretty poor. It adds the word he. In the original Greek, which says ego aimi, it means I am, I am. Go back to the book of Exodus, the Passover, the Jewish people being freed from enslavement in Egypt. Exodus 3, 13 through 15, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The I am would then pour out 10 plagues on Egypt, the world's superpower, and eventually take the firstborn of Pharaoh's people because he would not repent and release God's people from slavery. The I am would pass over every home in Egypt that had the blood of a lamb on its doorposts and preserve the life of those Jewish children. The very event the people of Jerusalem were about to celebrate at the Passover, the I am would part the Red Sea to see it that multitudes of people could leave 
and walk on dry ground to be delivered. The I am was here in the garden, in the flesh. He had calmed the raging storm. He had healed disease. He had restored sight. He had walked on water. He had raised the dead man, Lazarus, to new life. Standing in front of these soldiers and officials was all power. And they knew it. You know how I know? Look at the next verse, verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I want to pause right here and just say to the person in the room this morning who is a Christian, your faith is in Jesus. You would call yourself his disciple. This small moment should preach peace to you. It's not an exaggeration, nor is it theory or conspiracy to say that there is real darkness and evil and sin in our world that seems to be very set against Jesus and his righteousness, especially worldwide. There are efforts to stamp Jesus out, to silence Jesus, to redefine Jesus, to muzzle Jesus. May you be reminded today that Jesus has all power. He does not stand down in the face of those things. He is Lord of lords. And he is coming again. And nothing in your life and nothing in this world will stop that promise from being kept. Listen, the story of God and his people ends well. Take heart. Jesus has all power and Jesus is in control. To the person who's here in this room, you happen to be at City Light Bennington this morning and you have not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. You have not felt a sincere sorrow over your sin against God and wanted his forgiveness and asked for his forgiveness according to the blood of Jesus. Here's the subtle warning of this text. No person on the planet, no tribe, no nation, no tongue is able to stand up to Jesus. We will all tremble and bow the knee in one way or another before the great I am unto life or unto death. We will be forgiven our sin or we will die in our sin. A 19th century German pastor, F.W. Krumacher, commented on this. He said, their prostration in the dust before Jesus points out to unbelievers the situation in which they will one day be found. The homage which they refuse to Jesus here below, he will in due time compel them to render him. The knee that would not bow to him in voluntary affection will at length be constrained to do so by the horrors of despair. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 reads, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear those sins, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh, that every one of us here in this gym, that everyone in our families, in our community, in our workplace, in our region, that every person on the globe, from every tribe, nation, and tongue would surrender their lives to the leadership of Jesus, the Lord of Lords. Repent of their sin. Ask for forgiveness that would be given to them. Then we can actually look ahead to his return. Not with fear, but with gladness, with eagerness, with a longing because the coming king is indeed our king. So first, Jesus' power. Second, it's Jesus' plan. I want you to pick it up with me in verse 7. So he asked them again. Clearly, Jesus 
owns the situation right now. He literally has to reorient all these people to why they came to the garden. Uh, Whom do you seek a second time? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And here's what John, the author, says in verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you you gave me, I have lost not one. Ooh, the beard. It's very likely that these soldiers and officers were prepared to apprehend Jesus' followers, his disciples, along with him. But in this moment, church, don't miss this. As the soldiers are on the ground, leave no doubt what Jesus says goes. This is Jesus saying with the fullness of authority, authority and the fullness of love, I'm right here. Take me. Pardon them. I'm right here. Take me. Let them go. His physical protection of his disciples in this moment, which happens through the sheer power of his voice, by the way, is a picture of his greater greater eternal protection of their souls. Church, this is how we know Jesus has a perfect plan. And he is actually sovereign over your life today and mine, even if things seem kind of bleak. I want to come clean this morning um, and just say in my personal life, over the last few weeks, faith has been quite tested. Um, I have found myself, I think, in some of the, the, the greatest moments of doubt and wondering that I've had in several years' time. Um, I've been tempted to question a lot of things and give in to that temptation. I've been feeling numb and apathetic toward heaven, discouraged, uh, often feeling like I am failing not only at being a Christian, but the tasks and the responsibilities, uh, that of a pastor. There's a significant lack of joy that's been a part of my story and getting to places as a, a leader in the church where I don't have the answers and subsequent unbelief in my mind and heart that I did not think I was capable of. Sometimes I, I just wish that it was a lot easier to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Sometimes I I daydream about what it would be like to not be his disciple. I'm just being honest with y'all, and I know I'm not alone. There are people sitting here uh, in this room that have been doubting lately. I mean, have you? Have you been feeling the the weight of uh, circumstances, questioning the truth and and the endurance of your faith? You've been asking the question, God, where are you in this? It doesn't really make any sense. It could be a lot easier. Are you actually in control of this, Jesus? Jesus? It's really easy to want to sell out and compromise faith in Jesus for a way that feels a lot easier and, this is the key, gives us more of a sense of control. It's like we rush back to the Garden of Eden where our ancestors, Adam and Eve, made the declaration we would be a better God than God. And we start relying on ourself, we start taking matters into our own hands, and this is what happens. We start trusting self rather than Jesus. We start relying on self and depending on the strength of self rather than the strength of Jesus. And here's it we start looking for wisdom from within rather than wisdom from above. Church, dare I say that this is perfectly expressed in a particular character who comes out of nowhere to ruin the moment in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. 
You ever been in a situation and said something or done something where pretty shortly afterwards you thought, hmm, that was not helpful. I can't help but imagine that's how Peter felt. You would think, especially with everything Jesus foretold his disciples, all the preparation for his impending death, especially with the way he just spoke and identified himself and the soldiers trembled and he showed his power, especially with the overwhelming force of armed men standing right in front of him. Peter might not want to try to behead a dude. But as we see, he wants to take matters into his own hands and he doesn't trust in Jesus' perfect plan. And here's the thing for Peter. Even if that plan involves hardship, think about your life, or doubt, or confusion, or every emotion on the spectrum. He does not trust, and he would like to employ his own control. If that's you this morning, I just want to show you two plain as day fatal flaws in that mindset. The first is this, the dynamic of sin within us. If we exercised control, it would not go as well as we think it would. Like Judas, all of us are capable of thinking and doing destructive and dangerous things at any given moment. Judas was in Jesus' seminary, if you will. Front row seat to teachings and miracles. Personal tutor was Jesus himself. But Judas had an idol in his heart and it was money. And it was enough for him to betray God incarnate and to make an evil, selfish decision. And to go and drag a coalition of soldiers to a garden where Jesus was waiting The same garden where worship had happened. The same garden where prayer had happened. The same garden where Jesus had been in such intimate, powerful moments with his disciples and Judas didn't care. In turn, you can have a great environment, upbringing, family, education, vocational success, every material need met, and yet let it be known. My friend, your heart is a lot more fragile and vulnerable than you think it is. Therefore, Our ability to control anything pales in comparison to God's just by virtue of our nature. We can change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Second, even if things in our lives today were under our control, if we could control our health, if we could control our financial situation, if we could control our work environment, control our image, control our kids. It would not change the dynamic of sin around us. Our world remains corrupted, broken under its curse. And that is out of our control and will still affect us. What I'm trying to say out of this passage and in this moment, church, is that until our hunt for control ends, until our hunt to control everything in our lives is finally exposed in the end as coming up short, we will not be willing to surrender trust to Jesus, the one who always has been and always will be in control, the one who will march us one day into a kingdom where his rule and his reign is fully and totally exercised and the power and presence of sin are gone. Church, Christian, please, we have to have hope today. We have to have faith today. We have to have hope and faith tomorrow and the next day that Jesus is in control and does not permit anything to happen in our lives that is without a perfect plan and without his constant protection. 
If your faith is in him today, do not forget that he is holding you fast. He is keeping you. He is preventing you from being snatched from him. Consider these promises. Hebrews 1.3 says he is upholding all things by the power of his word. 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 1 Peter 1.5, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jude 24, praise is given to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jesus is in control because of his power. Jesus is in control because of his plan. He's worth trusting. And finally, because of his love. Before Jesus leaves the garden, he looks to Peter and he asks the rhetorical question of all rhetorical questions in our last verse this morning, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I want to bring us into the details of this story in closing. Jesus, he would have walked past this brook Kidron and it would have signaled his looming sacrifice. It was a brook that connected with all the temple spouts that would drain out the blood of animals who had been slaughtered in worship. And it's not crazy to think that there would have been a tinge of red in this brook as Jesus crossed it. And he knew in those moments that those sacrifices were never final. As the author of Hebrews would say, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Church, only one sacrifice can take away sin. And John doesn't record this, but this is the Garden of Gethsemane. The same garden where some of us would be familiar with Jesus' prayer of agony. He sweat drops of blood and felt extreme worry about the pain that he would have to endure. He prayed and he said, Father, if there's any way that you could take this cup from me, meaning if there's any way forgiveness can be accomplished without my suffering, make it so. However, not my will, but your will must be done. It's moments like these that show us loud and clear, church, God is love. God actually loves. His heart is actually loving. His kindness is loving. He loves his enemies. He loves sinners. In verse four, it says, and we read right past it, he stepped forward knowing all that would happen to him. He stepped forward. He accepted his fate. And if he would have refused, we would be confronted with the holy wrath of God left alone to our sin. Jesus would drink the cup of wrath so that you and I can drink the cup of blessing. Jesus would die a sinner's death so that we could be pardoned and freed. Jesus would love us to the very end. Jesus would breathe his last and lay down his life and give himself for you. Yes, you and me. Friends, sometimes we need to just cut through all the noise. Cut through the noise and recite the simple gospel, the simple good news that Jesus Christ lived and died for sinners. What grace that God has on us. And here's what I want to close with. If that's how much Jesus loves you should trust him with control of your life because he will not break that love. He will not not love you. It's apart from his nature. I want to pray for us.
Jesus, we take heart this morning that because of your power, because of your perfect plan that we don't always understand, and because of the unchanging nature of your love for us, you are in control, and we trust you. Amen.